Welcome to the debate at Newsweek. I'm Andrew Tallman. Today we're going to be talking about who really shares the blame for all of the violence and deaths done to children with guns in America. Whether politicians are ever justified in blocking people on social media, something the Supreme Court's going to take up. And are presidential debates obligatory either in the primary or in the general election season? We'll talk about it. Today joining us, we have Amani Wells and Yoha, political organizer and director of operations at Soul Strategies. And Jeff Charles, host of a Fresh Perspective podcast and a contributor for Red State and Liberty Nation. Amani and Jeff, welcome back to the debate. Thanks for having us. Yeah, glad to be back. Well, Jeff, you are up first. You wrote an article, Mm -hmm. the the headline of it, the title, Who is Responsible for Child Gun Deaths in America? And uh, you don't really pull any punches in it. Why don't you tell us what your premise is? Yeah, basically, um, I I wrote this article because of the situation that we're seeing down in, in Tennessee. And you know, whenever there's a mass shooting, uh, the anti-gunner lobby, as I call them, tend to try to exploit that to push more restrictions on lawful gun owners. And the solutions that they propose nine times out of 10 are solutions that wouldn't actually address the problem. I mean, one of the questions that I always ask these folks is what laws could you pass that would have prevented this shooting? I get crickets. I never get an answer because For the most part, unless there's something I don't know about, they don't propose legislation or measures that would have actually prevented it. Instead, what they do is they take the situation and they use it to target uh, Americans who are law abiding gun owners when there are actual solutions that I'm sure that we'll get into as as we talk about this. But there are ways to prevent these attacks or at least decrease them. I don't know if there's a way to eliminate them completely, unfortunately, but there are practical measures that can be taken to deal with the issue of mass shootings and also gun violence overall. And to me, pushing more gun control laws is a red herring that distracts us from actually rolling up our sleeves and pushing for for uh, steps that we can take to to minimize this as much as possible. Yeah, you know, I was curious in your article, you uh, put up a graphic from the Pew Research Center showing that the rate of gun deaths per 100,000 U.S. children and teens under 18 uh, broken out by race is very disturbing. It's I don't think it's surprising, but it's disturbing to consider that 2.3 each for white and black children. Uh, sorry, for white and Hispanic children, Asian children at 0.9 per 100,000 black children at a whopping 11.8. Uh, about five times as prevalent as white and Hispanic. That mm-hmm. certainly isn't coming from most of your school shootings or your mass shootings. That's coming from uh, individual violence in the you know black neighborhoods and you know guns, crime, drugs, kind of related stuff. Is that the point that you're getting at that we're focusing on the wrong problem? Yeah, that that was one of the points that I was making, and and it is it's those statistics are heartbreaking and i think it's something that everybody knows but this doesn't get national coverage a mass shooting at a school especially in a white neighborhood gets a lot of attention and i'm not saying that it shouldn't get a lot of attention i mean those things are heartbreaking but the fact of the matter is black kids are dying more from gun violence than anybody else and it's happening on a daily basis i mean there are tons of of black families who have lost brothers mothers fathers uh, cousins and and other family members and friends and it doesn't seem as if anybody really wants to address the root of this problem and then implement measures that, that that would solve it. So what always happens is that this gets used politically 
And that's all that pe- that the uh, chattering class cares about and nothing gets done. Meanwhile, the, prom- the, the, the problem still persists. You know, Amani, I want to obviously get you a chance to respond, but I want to focus on something that Jeff was just saying and get your thoughts on. Do you think I mean, media clearly focuses on the big events, right? Mass shootings are the big news story. But if the overall number of kids who are getting killed in gun violence is really not the mass shootings, not the school attacks, but these other incidents that happen far more frequently. Do you think we're focusing on the wrong thing to focus so much on the mass shootings? Not at all. I think gun violence is gun violence, whether it's a mass shooting, whether it's individual instances in a particular community, whether it's a road rage incident, whether it's the situations where you can't go to the wrong house anymore on accident because somebody will take your life. I think that we have a we have a gun problem. And I think it's something that needs to be addressed head on. We are one of the only nations that lets literally any old body get a gun in certain instances. And to me, that's a gigantic problem where people are constantly living in fear. Now you have to be scared if you pull into the wrong driveway. Now you have to be scared if you're grocery shopping, if you're in a urban community where there's prevalent gun violence in your neighborhood. Like it seems like there are no scenarios in which you can avoid gun violence these days. And I agree that oftentimes um, it is a political argument that takes place when we're discussing these things. But at this point in time, I'm to the point where I'm completely fed up with whether it's politicized or not. I think something needs to be done and measures need to be taken place immediately because we cannot continue on as a society this way where you are scared if you walk out of your house and do just the wrong thing, whatever that is that day, that you can end up dead because of a gun. Yeah. The so number. whatever measures need to be taken at this point, it's not something that should be filled with arguments and fluff and proposals. It's action. This is human life. And it, it upsets me because I feel like people don't take the issue seriously enough. And we spend so much time talking about, well, what should we do? Well, what could we do? And I ain't seen a law yet pass the law. <laughs> you know, like it's to the point where this is going to get even more and more and more extreme. And I'm scared to see how worse it can get when it's already this bad. Well, let me give, I want to give you a chance to respond to the first thing that Jeff was saying about that, you know, the laws primarily target law abiding citizens. They are the ones who are going to obey these laws. Criminals are not the ones who are going to obey these laws. And we know that most of the gun violence, not all, certainly not all, but most of the gun violence is done with illegally obtained weapons, whether they're stolen from cars, a very common problem or somehow or other trafficked around His argument, of course, that law abiding citizens are the ones you don't need to worry about. That's the people who break the laws and the the gun control uh, laws won't really affect them. What's your play out in the long run scenario? If we had very restrictive access to guns, how would that solve the problem of criminals and those kinds of violent deaths? I think it would absolutely go half, at least halfway into solving it, because, yes, some mass shootings, a lot of them, those were legally purchased firearms, even if they just purchased them that day. Um, I would say probably the last 10 or so mass shootings, when they talk about how did this person get this gun, it was a legally purchased gun. It, a lot of the time it wasn't a gun that was smuggled in or stolen. It was a gun that that person purchased with the intent to do harm. And I think we need to take our personal feelings out of a situation that is life or death. I mean, that's just like 
like back in the 1920s before we had seat belts, where there's some people who put their seat belts on before it was the law. And we should have just not made it the law to have seat belts because it would hurt the feelings of those who are already doing it. That doesn't matter. We need to go back to being a society that cares and values the lives of other people and stop being so self-centered about how something could personally make them feel. If you are a law abiding citizen and you we pass certain laws that still allow you to purchase a gun because I have a gun. I live in Texas. I'm not somebody that's just like, oh, you should not have no gun. Yeah. Y'all know I'm from Dallas, Texas. Come on now. I got a handgun. But at the end of the day, am I okay that I may have to go through a background check or do certain things in order to keep this gun? That's fine with me. If it means saving somebody's life, what does it do to me if I have no ill intent? I'm just curious, is that the proposal you want is more involved background checks, uh, I presume red flag laws, but you're not looking for outright bans or something like that. What would you like to see happen? Yeah, I'm not somebody who wants to completely outlaw guns as a whole. Do I think we need to ban assault rifles, them AK-47s? Absolutely, (laughs) because you simply don't need one. It's a hobby for most people. That's great. Get a new hobby. Okay, get your Glock and get better aim and do target practice with that. But it's just not necessary to own an assault rifle. In my opinion, you can't hunt with it. It it completely obliterates whatever animal that you're even trying to hunt. You can't even eat it after that point. So just figure out a better way. Get your shotgun, uh, get your handgun. Let's keep things regulated. But a lot of these um, mass shootings are done with assault rifles. They're weapons of war um, that anybody can get their hands on. I just don't think they're necessary in a civilized society. Jeff, I know I've been talking with Amani a little bit, but uh, your thoughts on, uh, you know, the assault weapons ban, a very commonly offered solution, more robust background checks for anybody acquiring a gun. But obviously, Amani says she's not looking for a total ban of any kind. Would any of this stuff work? No, 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 it wouldn't. Um, These mass shootings tend to happen in states that already have red flag laws, so they're already able to get their guns, even with the laws that are in place right now. Banning so-called assault weapons isn't going to do the trick either. One, it's a constitutional right to have those weapons. Two, they're not really weapons of war. Our military does not use AR-15s. Also, the vast majority of gun violence is committed using handguns. More people are murdered by by fists and by feet being beaten to death than so-called assault weapons. Banning assault weapons won't do anything. You can go and carry out a mass shooting with with handguns. As a matter of fact, it's happened plenty of times in the past. When you're looking at the majority of, of gun violence, which happens to involve gang violence and drugs, most of that is done using handguns. The thing about the this gun control legislation is that I call it a cheesecake legislation because cheesecake tastes good. It makes you feel good, but it has absolutely no nutritional value. These gun control laws, they pass these to make it look like they're doing something about the issue when they know that they're not. We need actual practical solutions. You rarely hear about mass shootings happening in in schools in urban areas. Why? Because they've got actual solutions to stop that from happening. They've got metal detectors. They've got people who are armed who can prevent this from happening. They take other measures that are more practical. They make these schools more hardened targets, which I get nobody wants to see metal detectors, but people don't want to see dead kids more. Laws aren't going to solve the problem. Prevention is is the key here. I would rather see the government focus on people who obtain their guns illegally, because like you said, Andrew, a lot of them are stolen from cars. Uh, There's straw purchases. There's all kinds of ways that criminals get guns. 
And the vast majority of gun violence is committed by people who obtain their firearms illegally. So making it harder for people like myself and Amani from uh, having the right to keep and bear arms is never going to solve the problem. It never has. And, and it never will. I would rather see not more laws. I'd rather see laws repealed so that law enforcement can actually focus on violent crimes. Like, for instance, if, if it involves drugs, I mean, or especially, you know, other types of low level drugs. Maybe we should be repealing the laws that make those illegal so that law enforcement can actually focus on crimes that violate people's rights rather than regulating what somebody puts into into their bodies. I, I think dealing with a lot of the economic issues, getting the government out of the way with that, that lead to this type of these types of environments where there's high violence. Those are actual solutions. But making it harder for somebody like myself to own a firearm or, you know, not allowing somebody to own a rifle. That that hasn't done anything and it never will. Again, it's just designed to make us feel good. But let, the problem still persists and is still getting worse. Let me let me push back just in I'm, one way. OK, so I'm I'm a Second Amendment supporter. Uh, I believe in sporting rifles. Uh, I believe in you know, all all of that. OK, but let me isolate one question out of some of what you said and what Amani said. The idea that, you know, OK, put aside the Second Amendment for a moment. Okay, put that aside for a moment. Put aside that more of the mass shootings are done with handguns than they are with sporting rifles. Uh, Put aside the question of what's an assault rifle, because as you as you rightly say, people aren't going. The army is not being equipped with uh, single, you know, shot semi-automatic AR-15s. We understand that. But okay, put all that aside. The legally obtained, like she mentioned, recent spate of shootings were if they had been forced to use a handgun instead of a 30 round magazine and a semi-automatic rifle. If that had caused five instead of 10 deaths two instead of four deaths, if that had reduced the number of deaths that alone, wouldn't that be an improvement, which I think is part of what she's saying. I know she wants to say a little bit more sweeping than that, but part of what she's saying is that would be a reduction. Wouldn't that be a good thing? You know, I'm not convinced that it would be. Now, I will say that it's possible. But like, for instance, my my pistol carries 17 rounds, so it's not that much less. And when you train with it, you can reload pretty fast. So I don't I'm not sure that it would really save a whole lot of lives. And as a matter of fact, it could end up uh, costing more lives. One thing that I didn't mention yet is that studies, uh, studies, many studies have shown that when somebody has a, a gun, especially a lawful uh, a gun owner, they are far more likely to use that weapon in self-defense than they are to commit a crime with it. The CDC found that it can happen up to three million times per year. It just never gets reported in the news or reported to the, to the police. Uh, like say if somebody comes at me with a knife and I pull my gun and I never even fire it and they run away, that's a defensive gun use. That I use my gun to stop myself from getting attacked. And chances are I probably wouldn't report that to the police because the guy's already gone. So I think that we have to look at the whole picture here. It, I don't think that it will save more lives because if, if you make it harder, especially for, for black people to own firearms, you will have more death. You know, Amani, this is kind of the classic defense of gun ownership, right? That uh, the number right. of the number of crimes and deaths averted, or at least where the, the right person winds up getting shot because they were the criminal, because defensive use of guns estimated two to three million a year, perhaps, is that not a counter argument to the problem of the gun violence that gets publicized? Because the incident you don't report doesn't make it on the news. Right. Typically. Right. But I also think that is a that occupies a very small slice of this argument. And I'm uh, more on the side with you. I am in, in the mode of why not do it all again? We're not talking about something that is 
minuscule or a small thing where we have differing opinions on something, you know, just on a political or thought opinion based thing. This is quite literally life and death. So if we can't if we can do everything in our power as leaders of this nation to prevent people from dying, I don't see why not. It's that serious of an issue. If we want to do all of the measures that Jeff was talking about, let's do all of that. Let's also do these other measures. If we were ever to be restrictive in a time with something, it should be a deadly weapon. That's like the one thing that we should absolutely be restrictive of. And again, those people who still pass the background checks and all that, y'all gonna keep your guns. Like, I don't understand why perfectly law-abiding citizens who don't have a criminal history, who aren't doing anything reckless or have any plans to do anything reckless with their gun are so fearful that an assault rifle ban or some type of regulation even would affect them. If you ain't got no bad intent, you keeping your gun unless they do something digging and they find something that shows you shouldn't have it. You know, I was reading the other day a, a very interesting brief by the uh, National African-American Gun Association where it submitted a brief to the, the New York state case, uh, you know, the gun case where people were being denied permits talking about the history of gun control measures and how it affected black people in this country, both in the South, which I think we all know about, uh, you know, in the 1860s and thereafter, but also in the North at the time. I'm curious about the things that have come up. I mean, it's been around, but it was brought up recently by Vivek Ramaswamy when he uh, talked at the NRA convention and it came up, I think, in his interview with Don Lemon, just prior to Don Lemon getting dismissed from CNN. The question of how gun control historically has been used against black people and whether you view gun control measures as something that are you know, racist in effect, if not in intent. And I know, you know, Amani, you said you own a gun, uh, but kind of just address mm-hmm. that question of the his- the history of racism with gun control laws. Yes, um, there is a history of it. But at the same time, we are in prison day. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, are the is the history of black people having guns and owning guns important to defending their lives and some of the things that were going on in that time. And is, is it still important for black people to be able to have access to guns? Absolutely. But at the same time, I think this is be, should be an issue that unifies us more than anything. And I just get frustrated that we can't find some sort of common ground on the situation to get something done because we're so stonewalled on the issue because we're thinking about, well, what about this? Well, what about the ramifications of this? Well, what about if we do this? And each and every day we're having more and more shootings we are well past 100 y'all listen to my voice when i say this we are well past almost 150 mass shootings this year 2023 that is four more people dying plus those that are injured it's even more people who have been shot this year this is very serious this is very serious do the math with me y'all 150 times this year where four or more people have died that means at least almost 800 people have died this year because of a gun. It's a serious issue. So when we sit around and we talk about, well, what about we do this? What if 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 we do that? I think legislators should be acting. Let's talk about mental health. Y'all want to put some sort of parameters around mental health so that people are not only purchasing guns and doing reckless things, but they're, you know, that could help us decrease our homelessness issue. There are so many issues, and this is just me going on a tangent around guns and other things that we have to be active on because if we don't, we will see it get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. So I'm just in the mind of whatever the ramifications are in a situation where it is this dire, something needs to be done immediately. 
You know, Jeff, one of the uh, one of the things that sometimes gets alleged is that it's sort of, uh, you know, middle aged or older white men who like to own guns, and believe in owning guns. And, you know, sometimes the allegation is uh, y'all kind of hang out with the, the racists, hang out with the white supremacists. And you don't get real excited when we talk about arming black people. Uh, I, on the other hand, am absolutely in favor of arming every citizen who wants to be armed, especially black people, especially who live in high crime or high poverty areas, because I think they're the ones that are most vulnerable to these effects, as the graphic you included in your editorial clearly shows uh, your thoughts about kind of that history of gun control being racist, being used against particularly black people in this country. Yeah, gun control is very much racist, racist uh, from its inception. I think gun control laws are still racist. They still make it disproportionately harder for law-abiding Black Americans to own firearms. I mean, you look at these gun licensing schemes that you see in California and New York, much of which was struck down by the Bruin decision last year from the Supreme Court, um, but they're still trying to find ways to make it harder to get licensed. They make it cost prohibitive. They they make it so that you have to jump through all these ho- hoops that Black people are far less, li- less likely to be able to do easily than for 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 white people and that that's how gun control laws have evolved they got to the point to where they couldn't say black people couldn't own guns so they found other ways like banning low like affordable pistols so that black people cannot afford them so they, they still do this today but nevertheless there has been an increase in black people purchasing firearms, becoming responsible gun owners, especially uh, among black women. And if there's anybody who needs, if there are any Americans that really need to have the means by which they can defend themselves, it's going to be mostly black people. Um, There was a report last year that in uh, Philadelphia, uh, in, in the black area of Philadelphia, the rate of defensive gun uses had shot up considerably. Like they, they, they skyrocketed. And, um, and to me, more armed, responsible Americans are better than only allowing criminals to own firearms. So self-defense is important. And um, those statistics that you quoted, Amadi, are tragic, Eight, about 800 people. It's horrible. But when I look at the number of people who would likely die or be hurt because they didn't have the means by which they can defend themselves, then I would guarantee you that number would be higher. Like I said, the CDC found that defensive gun uses happened up to 3 million times. Uh, the most conservative study that I've seen on this, the lowest estimate was that defensive gun uses happen between 60,000 and 70,000 times per year. That is a lot of times that people have had to use a gun to defend themselves. But again, we don't hear about it because even if it does make the news, it makes local news and and that's it. And that part of the conversation or, or that detail, it tends to be kept out of the national conversation on gun control. Yeah. So I think that we need to look at all of these things. Yeah, for my part, I'll say two things before we uh, move on to the next subject. One is, uh, I think uh, my industry, you know, news media, does a, a pretty incompetent job of presenting the entire scope of what's involved with guns. It's really fixated on particular mass events and then the reaction to those. The other thing is, and this is just more of a PSA, okay? If you're going to own a gun, don't leave it in your car. And for God's sake, don't leave it in your car unlocked because so many of the, I mean, that's where, you know, we have literally gangs of teenagers that will go around from car to car opening doors and taking what they can find and that's how they get so many of the guns that wind up getting used in crime so please be better stewards of the legally acquired guns that you have don't leave it in your car and certainly don't leave it in your car unlocked when we come back on the debate we'll talk about whether it's appropriate for politicians to block annoying obnoxious uh, profane people or anybody really from their social media accounts here on the debate at Newsweek 
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to the Debated Newsweek. I'm Andrew Tallman. Amani Wells and Johan, Jeff Charles are in the house today, and we're talking about a case the Supreme Court has just agreed to hear about whether local elected officials, school board members in one case, and a, uh, a commission member, county commission member, I think in the other case, uh, maybe a city administrator, I forget it. It doesn't really matter. They basically, they both blocked people from social media. In one case, it was from the personal account, not the official account, but they were talking about policy on the personal account the judge said that one was okay in the other case uh they blocked people for repeatedly like posting 200 plus times the same content for behaving obnoxiously on the social media account and the judge there said nope you cannot block these people this is a place where you're judging them on the basis of the content they're posting and that is unacceptable under the first amendment so clearly we have differing legal opinions on this and it's going to go to the supreme court let me start with you amani your thoughts on whether it is constitutional or whether it is appropriate for local officials to delete comments or block people from their social media accounts. Oh, this is a tricky one. Yeah. <laughs> this one is big. I know. <laughs> because I understand wanting to block somebody because people are very annoying on social media all over. I don't even want to get on Twitter anymore because it's that much of a cesspool of nonsense all the time that it annoys me too bad. So I understand the urge to block people. Um, but I'm also I'm part of the mind of just don't engage. Like when you do run for office and you become an elective official, you are opening yourself up to the opinions of those who hold you accountable and put you there. So you have to be able to receive that and be able to take it on the chin and just keep it pushing. Now, if there are threats of violence, if there are threats of harm, if there's something that's just like completely outlandish, then I feel like they should, they can be blocked if it's but outlandish at the same time is um, subjective. But I'm talking something that is like un- indefensible, undeniably harmful, you know, physically a threat, doxing, something like that. I feel like you can be blocked. But if it's just a nasty opinion that you don't like, you can just have to grin and bear it, man. You know, the uh, platforms themselves, of course, often have rules and restrictions and, you know, somebody can get blocked under their terms of service. And of course, that's part of the issue here is that these are private spaces, right? They're not genuinely public spaces, government property or anything like that. Um, but yeah, the the as you say, the clear case of the obnoxious and or threatening person. Uh, Jeff, your thoughts about public officials blocking people or deleting comments on their either on their official or on their private page if they happen to be discussing regular business. Yeah, this this is a tricky one, and I'm as you know the resident Twitter junkie here. I can affirm what you said, Amani. Twitter is still a cesspool, so it's I I wouldn't be using it as much <laughs> if I didn't have to for for my job. But um, 
But by the way, I, I will just I'll just say for my own part, I only use Twitter when I need to to go find something or to look at sort of what I see. But I the the, the quality of the discussion on Twitter is um, well, let's just say it's not the same as on the debate. <laughs> I'll put it that way. It's, it's a little bit different than we try to do here. Go ahead, Jeff. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Not not even close, although there, 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 Twitter can be fun and I mean, you can have some good conversations. But, yeah, a lot of it is accessible when it comes to this issue. It's tough because it's also it's worth noting that if somebody blocks you, it doesn't mean that you can't still see what they're saying. If you log out of Twitter and you bring up their account, you can still see what they say. The difference, though, is that you can't you can't comment on it. That's where it kind of gets into an issue. If it's a government run account, if this is a government account, people should have the right to say whatever they want to whatever politician they want, uh, you know, barring, you know, threats and stuff like that. And I so I can see why it would be a constitutional issue. And I lean towards saying that a politician's government account where they discuss government business, that that they should not be able to block people on that. The government should not be able to prevent you from saying something to them. I mean, that's the, the First Amendment, the right to petition the government. Now, when it's personal matters, if it's on a personal account, that's where it's a little bit more iffy for me, because politicians, I mean, they still have natural rights, too, um, even though they spend most of their time violating ours. That's I digress. But on their personal accounts, I, I, I would be a little bit more lenient as far as letting them decide who gets to see what they say or not. Um, but definitely with their government official accounts. Yes, I don't think that they should be blocking anybody. You know, when I think about that, there's so many legal dimensions to this, right? The type of form that's been established. Is it, uh, you know, government business or non-government business? Um, clearly, you could just cut off comments, right? The uh, Let's say the county commissioner can just have a, uh, a Facebook or a, an Instagram page where, you know, she just makes her comments and then nobody's allowed to comment. That's allowed because there's no viewpoint discrimination there. And if what they're using it for is to say, I don't want to hear you say things where you point out where I'm wrong. <laughs> I mean, that's clearly that's unacceptable under the First Amendment. But my God, I know so many people who just they just can't handle their social media. You know, <laughs> they just cannot do it responsibly. And it's somewhere between harassment or graffiti or profanity or something like that, where it just becomes they, they can ruin the space, essentially, and then it goes from being something where you kind of want to hear what people say to being something where I wouldn't want that. And I can put up with a lot. You know, I don't almost almost never block people, but I've seen things either on my account or on a government official. Account. I'm like, oh, my God, can you imagine having to endure that? So I know, Amani, you kind of lean towards the, hey, you know, buck up, young kiddo. It's going to be OK. This is part of the job. But. Aren't they like you go to a city council meeting? Okay, they have rules two minutes, three minutes. You can't attack the person, you can't use profanity. And if you behave badly, guess what? There's a guy with a badge who can escort you out the room. Why can't that be the way it is on social media to some degree, also? And you know what? I, I do agree with you because just like you were just saying, right now we're all having productive conversations where I believe we're all being honest to ourselves and like we're genuinely trying to have a conversation. I feel like people use Twitter to be provocative or just stir up stuff a lot of times. So it kind of takes away from like what we we're all saying, like the, the legitimacy of them, like really get, are they really telling their opinion to their local politician because it bothers them or whatever, or are they just saying some outrageous stuff? So I feel you on that. Like I've had, I've had my day on Twitter. Okay. And it's not fun. <laughs> Getting dragged on Twitter is not fun at all. So 
it's it's so complicated. I do think there should be certain there should be rules um, around it. Like if we're literally talking about policy, if you were tweeting me because you are I propose something and you don't like it and you want to give me your opinion or I just voted away you don't like, then yeah, like that's free range. But then there's comments that's like. If you be, hope you die, suck my blank. Like, okay, girl, you can be blocked because what, this isn't productive. <laughs> like, this isn't productive. Are you just reading from Twitter now? Is that what's happening? I'm not sure. Basically, yeah, yeah, she's on my, she's on my Twitter. Oh, she's on your right page. Now. Okay, I got you. Yeah. I got you. <laughs> right now, like, that's the stuff that just block. Like, and I feel like that should be allowed. Like, because that's not genuine. You're not trying to have a conversation. That's not your opinion on this policy. You just, just told me to choke and die. You hope I don't wake up tomorrow. Like, okay, girl. <laughs> <laughs> I I I, I kind of it, it I find I find myself so torn on this subject. On the one hand, uh, I'm a big believer in free speech. Obviously, I want to let it all go. On the other hand, so many people are so terrible at this that I don't mind censorship by the government official on their you know the, the commissioner or the city councilman because it you know I I've seen it be abused the, the censoring and I've seen it be done fairly where they're trying to preserve the space. Jeff, your thoughts? Yeah, see, my thing, there's a difference between social media and a city council meeting, right? It's much easier to disrupt an in-person city council meeting. And if you go there to disrupt, then now you're making it harder for the government to allow other people to use to exercise their First Amendment rights. So I think that there is room to be able to say, okay, this guy is just messing around. Let's escort him out. Um, But on social media, it's different. It's harder to disrupt a conversation because I can go and say all kinds of wacky stuff on some, you know, politicians thread it doesn't mean anybody has to listen to me they can still post exactly what they want to post and the politician can look at it and the thing is i understand that they're they're going to hear things that they didn't want to hear well guess what nobody put a gun to your head and forced you to run for office to become a politician if you don't like it and i mean i would tell people you know maybe you shouldn't read the comments <laughs> i mean, I mean it's, it's i mean maybe i mean on one hand they should because they should know what their constituents are saying but social media is just one of many ways that you can communicate with with a government official so to me, I still kind of lean more towards it, especially for government run accounts that should be open again. They choose to be there. And it's not the same as disrupting a, a city council meeting or something of that nature. You know, it's also kind of interesting because there's this public records dimension of this. Right. When people are making comments, if you're deleting them, you're kind of changing the public record. And, you know, depending on what the laws are in any given state, I know here in Florida, we have extremely robust protections. We call our sunshine law where deleting a comment can actually wind up being a kind of a sunshine violation because you're, you're eliminating the public record and people aren't able Mm -hmm. to see what happened. Um, And I, I I tend to lean almost in the direction that if you're going to block a person, which is different from deleting a comment that you kind of owe them some steps, (laughs) you know, like, Hey, man, getting a little bit out of control here. Why don't you dial it back a little bit? Here are the rules for this page. You warn them, you warn them, and then you're like, okay, you got to go. And then I wouldn't mind if an official said, all right, so here's what happened. I blocked this person. Here's why. (laughs) I mean, you know, give your explanation to protect that space. Last thoughts on, um, you know, I I did want to ask you guys both one real quick question, though, before we move on. Um, Do you have you blocked people from your social media feeds? I have God, I can count probably two, maybe ever three, maybe it's just a very, very low number. And I hate doing it. And I hate deleting comments. There are times when it makes sense to me. But Amani, have you ever had to block people? 
it's very rare that I have to block somebody because I'm like you, like I have my limits. Like I'm only going to block you if you have left me no choice but to block you. <laughs> so it doesn't happen all the time. And I'm thinking from like our soul strategies page, hardly ever. Mm-hmm. It's only on the where it's like death threats. <laughs> like, okay, now you're blocked because I'm not looking at that. Yeah. Like, don't make me, please don't make me. I don't want to be this person, Jeff. Um, I have a number of federal agencies, including the FBI, blocked on Twitter. <laughs> but uh, in in general, like I I I don't block very often. It, it, they have to be pretty egregious or disruptive for me to actually block them. I'll, I'll mute people if I don't want to hear from them from them. But I don't really block people all that often. I mean, that's just how I run my page. If they got something to say, they got something to say, and if I want to respond i'll make fun of them and if i don't i'll ignore them yeah and, and in my case a lot of times what i'll do is i'll just kind of scold people i'll be like hey this is a page where a lot of people come and they read comments and uh you know sometimes they're minors or whatever you know i just try to get people to behave by uh gently chastising them <laughs> hey can we clean it up just a little bit that would be better when we come back uh interesting future for uh the 2024 presidential election whether we're going to have any debates at all or if those debates are going to involve the currently the main contenders, uh, former President Trump and uh, current President Biden here on the debate. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome back to the debate. So interesting news notes since we last talked. Uh, President Biden has officially announced his campaign to be reelected. He's got a couple of, let's just say, long shot challengers coming against him in the Democratic primaries. Of course, President Trump, former President Trump, continues to be the, uh, the you know, favored in most of the polls. But we're well out right now. And there's a lot of challengers in the field, potential challengers and actual challengers Weirdly, it looks like the Democrats are not going to have any debates in the primaries against President Biden. And President Trump, meanwhile, is threatening not to participate in debates on the Republican side, which he has threatened before. Let's start with the Democrat side. Uh, Amani, do you think the Democrats owe Democrat voters primary debates for long shot challengers to President Biden? Absolutely. This is one story that I think is I think it's outrageous that they're doing this truly like it it actually blows my mind because like you said if it's such a long shot then just get on there and stand on your stuff okay if you're the best person for the job then face america that's quite literally your job and your responsibility to do and let us decide between you or whoever what's best for us it blows my mind y'all when i saw this news break i couldn't believe it I said, let me read that again, because I just know that can't be correct. I can't believe that. It's just completely outrageous. And I think it's cowardly. Truly, I do. Because if you think you're such hot stuff, if you got it all together, if you're the perfect person for the job, then let the American people decide. A lot of people don't even tune into politics. Like, I think people in the political world think that we're all the same. Like, we're part of this because it's something that we just are 
outrageously passionate about for some reason. We're all sick in the head, y'all. This isn't fun <laughs> stuff. But we're all sickly obsessed with politics, so we know every little thing that's going on. Your average everyday American doesn't know what's going on until the dang primaries are happening, until the presidential primaries are happening, and until they're tuning into those debates. A lot of times, that's the first time people are even hip to what's happening, who's even running against Biden, all of that stuff. So I feel like you're taking away their opportunity to really understand the process and decide for themselves. And I don't think that's right. Yeah, I, I personally know all the city council members in all the cities in my area, all the county commissioners, most of the names of the state senators and state reps, even the ones that are out of my area. Uh, whereas I think most people would be surprised to learn that we have a county commission. Uh, <laughs> just you know where we are versus where a lot of people are unfortunately that's the reality jeff what do you think are uh are democrats doing their uh their constituents a disservice by not putting biden up against the outsiders yeah of course they are but they don't care because they're going to get away with it and this is the like the billionth example showing that these parties both of them don't care what we think democrats want biden in that position so they're going to do what they need to do to make sure that happens. Uh, they did the same thing to Bernie Sanders. I mean, they, they did him dirty. So I'm not surprised to see this at all. They want Biden in that position and they don't want any chance that a challenger might come up that might be able to to at least lower his popularity a bit. Because, you know, like you said, it, it is a long shot. I mean, if RFK ends up debating Biden, Biden will probably still win the nomination. But they don't want any other voices getting out there except for the ones that they approve. And both Democrats and Republicans control that very closely whenever they can. So, I mean, when I saw that headline, I was like, well, yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, they might as well have been predicting that it's going to rain in Austin tonight. <laughs> you know, when I saw this story um, with the current slate of opponents, I, I actually think they're both such long shots that it almost doesn't matter. But if you had any serious contenders step up to challenge uh, President Biden, then I would find it outrageous. So because I think that the questions about his age, competency, mental acuity, those kinds of things are being had on both sides of the aisle. And as a Democrat, were I one, I would want to see, OK, how is it really looking compared to my other viable alternatives? The problem is, for now, the other alternatives don't seem all that viable. Switching the sides, talking about the GOP here again, you have President Trump kind of up to his old antics of threatening to pull out a debate because he doesn't like the venue or he doesn't like who's associated with the debate or he thinks it's going to be biased or, or whatever. Um, do you think that um, he and the other candidates are obligated to engage in these debates? Should we be listening to these criticisms he's offering, Jeff? I mean, here's my thing. His criticisms may or may not be valid. I mean, there, there may be hostile moderators or whatever. That, that, that's not a good enough reason to not participate in a, in a debate, though. I, I think he sh I think he should. I think it's it's wrong to deprive the, the base of that. And he's probably banking on the fact that he is so far ahead in the polls that at this point he doesn't have anything to gain with it and maybe something to lose. But again, that could still work against him if he if if his opponents are able to frame this as him being afraid to defend his record, afraid to defend his his uh, policy stances, because there's a lot of ammo there, even if you're coming from the right. I mean, I know a lot of the criticism comes from the left, but pe people on the right can highlight how he handled covid, how he still kept Fauci in charge and, and all these things. And it comes off like he's trying to avoid that. That being said, 
I think he will probably still participate, at least in some of them. Um, I think he's trying to use this as leverage to have more of a say in how these debates are conducted, the moderators who are allowed to be there. But in in general, I don't think that there is much of a downside for him to participate, even if the moderators are biased. Let's say they are. I mean, who can use that better than Trump? He's very good at spinning the everybody's out to get me narrative and it works. So, I mean, I, I think he should debate. And if he doesn't, I think it's going to it's going to be worse for him. Yeah. What do you think, Amani? Uh, is uh, President Trump obligated to uh, participate? Do you think he will participate? How do you think this plays on the GOP side? Jeff, this is why I love talking to you, because we just be agreeing so much. Sometimes. <laughs> but, yes, look, it's ridiculous. like he's being. I can't say that word, but they're both being <laughs> cowardly and scary about the situation. And I know we're talking about Trump, but this is this is why I'm so glad you expect this from Trump. But from the Democrats who have been harping on the democratic process and how important it is to protect democracy and all of that, mm. for them to be turned around and saying we're just not going to host a presidential debate. And we're just going to remove that piece of our democratic process. It's hypocritical, y'all. It is so hypocritical. And it's just cowardly. And we know Trump is a coward sometimes. Sometimes he wants smoke. You know, he, he'll get out there with you sometimes. But sometimes when he knows that it's not going to look good for him, he wants to make it difficult because he's scared or his ego is fragile and he doesn't want to face whatever backlash or he doesn't want to give a microphone to somebody who has the opportunity to criticize him. So I think they're both in the same boat right now. They're both being very, very cowardly and they are both doing us all as voters a complete disservice by not allowing us to choose. You know, having obviously lived through the first presidential uh, uh, tenure of President Trump and the run up to it, I think it's fair to say that whatever else you might notice about uh, President Trump, former President Trump, if you prefer to say um, for him, everything 100 percent of the time, 24 hours a day is a negotiation. And this is a way of him negotiating for whatever it is he thinks he can get and throwing out these allegations, throwing out these claims, distracting, whatever. That's just all part of the Trump process. And so I don't find anything surprising about it. I tend to agree with Jeff. I think he's going to he's going to complain. He's going to use it to his advantage. He will then show up. And if things don't go well or if they do. He'll still complain <laughs> no matter how it turns out. But I have a di- I have a different question. And I, this is something I'm, I'm personally kind of passionate about. So I'm very curious to get both of your takes on this. I think that presidential debates are stupid. And and, and hear me out. Here's why I say um, debates are the kind of thing that legislators do. They're the kind of thing that policy oriented people do. And when I'm hiring a president, I'm not hiring somebody who's good at debate and I'm not hiring somebody based on their legislative perspective. I'm hiring an administrator and governor debates the same thing. I think governor debates are really quite dumb because what I want to know is whether somebody has executive capacity. So the questions we ask them are usually legislator questions, not executive questions. And we don't get at this issue of, well, how do they manage? Who do they fire? How do they take responsibility? Are they organized that, you know, are they effective? I feel like the debates never get at that stuff. And so we wind up electing senators who might make good legislators, but they're not administrators running the federal government. I'll start with you, Jeff. Do you think there's a fundamental flaw in the presidential or gubernatorial debate concept? 
Yes, but I think there's also a flaw in what you said, Andrew. This is we're not electing an administrator. We're electing somebody who's popular. We're electing the king of America. We're electing the leader of the free world. Now, what you say is how it's supposed to be. Yes, that we are electing an administrator, and that's how we should view that office and nothing more than that, because that's what the presidency was always supposed to be. But now uh, the American society views it as so much more. It is a popularity contest. And, you know, we watch these debates. And you're right. There tends to not be a whole lot of substance there. Sometimes there might be some exchanges that really illustrate the differences between the two candidates and gives you a better idea as to which one would work for you best. But other than that, I mean, beyond the entertainment factor, which, you know, if Trump's involved in it, it's going to be entertaining, right? <laughs> um, beyond the entertainment factor, I don't feel like we really learn a whole heck of a lot when we watch these presidential debates, because a lot of times they don't focus as much on policy. They focus more on on sound bites, which is really what our generation is about anyway. I mean, with cable news, we're used to hearing things in sound bites. With the presidential debate, it's like an hour long of sound bites that don't really drill down into the issues and how they plan to fix them. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. I mean, they, the presidential debates are, for the most part, kind of useless. You know, it is true. You get a lot of sound bites. You get a lot of entertainment out of it. Typically, uh, do you, and and you may find out that somebody is very superficial in their thinking, but not usually. You know, at this point in in their lives, they're going to at least be interesting for the most part. Um, but you know, I, again, I I tend to think they're not that productive for getting us the right result. Amani, uh, your thoughts on whether the debate concept is good, particularly for administrators, for executives, for governors, for mayors, you know, for presidents. I think it's good. And I agree with all of y'all's criticism on it. Like there should be better questions that kind of help us understand what the president actually does and is even capable of doing, because we do spend so much time talking about things in these presidential debates. It's like, babe, you can't do that anyway. (laughs) So I don't know why we're talking about it, but (laughs) I agree that we need to skew the questions. I think for me and I think for a lot of voters, the debates are primarily used so that they can kind of gauge like the character and the vibe of the person. And a lot of times the debates are helpful because you can see who's being superficial, who's up there being robotic, who is just reading off of, you know, their little cue card or who is genuinely charismatic and somebody that you like and want to be led by. Because, yeah, just like Jeff said, this is ultimately like it's the leader of our of our world, of our free world, you know, and I'm tired about of not liking the president. I don't know about y'all. I haven't liked the president in a long time. So I think it's really important that we can just kind of see what these people are like what they're going to do and just kind of be able to gauge their character a little bit. You know, one of the other things I, I, I had gotten in the habit of looking up, like asking chat GPT, you know, what do you think? <laughs> and one of the things that I, um, I actually learned from chat GPT today, because I asked, you know, what are the three arguments in favor of and against having presidential debates? And one of the things that chat GPT said that made me stop and think for a second was the argument in favor of it is, you get to see whether they have what you might consider an executive demeanor, you know, how they handle criticism, challenges, ruffling of feathers kind of stuff. And you maybe make decisions about whether they're the right person to run an organization based on that. Otherwise, I'm still where I was. <laughs> I'm not, I just and, and look, I'm entertained by them as much as all of y'all. And I will watch every moment of them as much as y'all. But um, I'm so frustrated with the process of picking the president and even governors that I, I, I really seriously think that we need some reforms here. Well, you guys, you know, it's been fantastic as always. You're such good contributors. Amani Wells and Yoha, Jeff Charles, thanks so much for joining us today on the debate. I'm Andrew Tallman. We'll see you next time at Newsweek. Newsweek.
being a staple in American media for over 90 years, Newsweek now brings you an exceptional lineup of podcasts. The Debate. They'll recognize how these policies aren't working. They'll feel the pain and they'll change their behavior. The Josh Hammer Show. Restore the principles and the political paradigms of the American founding. The Crystal Knight Show. Just because officers are black doesn't mean that the policing system still isn't inherently racist. Fast women. Chevy's actually doing really well and Honda's really not. Wow. Which is like the opposite of most people's perception of them. It is. The Parting Shot. Every year when the new nominations are announced, I get this excited, nostalgic feeling and it brings out that little kid in me who just loved movies. The Royal Report. Harry and Meghan's head of comms has announced they now move forward to their kind of future outside the royal family. Newsweek Podcasts. New episodes drop weekly. Download or listen now at newsweek.com or wherever you get your podcasts.